Well, we are continuing, actually finishing, our study um, entitled The Word, and we've been looking at the Bible and the nature and character uh, of the Bible, and the, uh, the overarching theme for this series um, is really the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Bible. And so the first week, we started off asking the question, did God really say? Um, and how do we know that the words that are in God's Word are actually God's words? Um, and so we kind of settled that question uh, the first week. And, and how much of it should we believe? Should we believe all of it? Um, and the Apostle Paul tells us, as we'll see in a verse that we look at again today, that yes, all Scripture, um, everything contained in here was breathed out, was inspired by God himself, and uh, is historical um, and accurate historically as well. And then the second week, Dr. Ben Smith was with us, and, and he asked the question, can we trust the Bible? Is it reliable? Are, are the words that we have today, the words that were written centuries ago um, in the Old Testament? And he laid out a strong case for the reliability of Scripture based on the uh, manuscript evidence that we have uh, historically. And then even after he spoke that week, the New York Times put out an article um, that gave even more credence to the reliability of the Old Testament. You could look that up uh, on the internet. Uh, Google would be helpful for that. And this week, we're looking at the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Bible in our lives. Now, authority... Uh, is an interesting word uh, because it, it has an interesting effect on us. Uh, the word authority conjures up all kinds of images in our minds uh, and, and has both positive effects and negative effects on us. You know, authority is, is interesting because there, there's a certain part of us, a certain part of our nature, and I'm sure you've felt this before, that desires to be independent of all authority. There's a part of us that would just rather not have any authority over us. And then there's another part of us that recognizes the function of authority and the purpose of authority, and actually even the need for authority. Uh, so authority does this kind of positive and negative thing in us due to our nature. Um, so authorities like the IRS would have one effect on you uh, and on your thinking. Um, but then there's other authorities that we recognize as, as necessary, as, as helpful. So I was at a Little League baseball game last night. You, know, you recognize the fact that when there's a, a game going on, it's helpful to have an umpire who has some authority. It's helpful to have a referee during a basketball game. We, we recognize the need for that authority in those contexts. Uh, we all recognize the need, um, unfortunately, um, for police. Um, not that police are bad, but it's bad that we need them. Uh, we recognize the need for police, for legal authority. Um, and we recognize even certain types of authority that is necessary. Uh, doctors have a certain type of authority in their field of study, in their area of expertise. And we, we recognize the benefit and the need for that. Uh, and even car mechanics, um, most of us have needed to reply, rely on the authority 
uh, of someone who is a master in their craft, a master in their trade that can do things that we have no idea how to do because they're an authority. Uh, they're an expert in that area. The reality is that we long for good authority. There, there's a part of us that, that recognizes the need for true and, and just authority in our lives, the need for it, the helpfulness of it. And what if there was an authority like a map? A map that could chart out and show us how to get to where we want to go, that could guide us, that could direct us to the destinations that we desire to arrive. What if there was an authority like a, a dictionary that could define things for us, that could explain things for us, like, why am I here? What is the purpose and the meaning of all of this? that could shine some enlightenment, provide some enlightenment to us in our lives. And in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writing to his uh, protege, Timothy, who's now pastoring the church in Ephesus, uh, says that this scripture uh, is that very map, is that guide, is that dictionary that we need for our lives. Uh, and he describes it this way in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 in 15, Paul writes, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings of Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith. In Christ Jesus. Wise. The scripture makes us wise. You know, a good friend and mentor of mine has often said that wisdom is the accumulation of many, many, I'll never do that again. Right. Wisdom is learning from mistakes so often. The scripture makes us wise in avoiding those mistakes. And, and Paul says it makes us wise, but it makes us wise for something. It makes us wise for salvation. Now, often we think of salvation as uh, go to heaven when you die. Um, that, that Paul might be saying that the scripture and these sacred writings will make you wise for salvation, wise so that you can go heaven, and salvation certainly is going to heaven when you die, but it's so much more than that as well. Certainly, Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus, already understood the basics of salvation. What Paul was saying was that the scripture could make him wise for the ongoing effects of salvation in his life, could make him wise in this life, could help him and others to avoid mistakes, to avoid making decisions that cause pain, not only to us, but to others around us, to make us wise in finding life, that which is truly life. The scripture can point us to that as well. 
And in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, Paul goes on, and he points out what I would call the four prophets of Scripture. Not like Old Testament prophets with the PH, but uh, prophets with an F in the middle. Uh, and here's what he writes in verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. He writes, All Scripture uh, is breathed out by God, and it, it's profitable. It produces profit in your life. It's profitable for teaching, uh, for reproof or rebuking, uh, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul says, Timothy, the Scripture plays four functions in your life. It'll play four functions in the life of your congregation uh, as they seek to know and to follow Jesus Christ. And he says the first function is teaching. Now hopefully uh, some of you, over the course of uh, weeks or months or years, have found some profit in the teaching that you receive at North Bible Church through the Scripture. You have seen how you have grown in Christ and your knowledge uh, of who He is, of who God is. Scripture is the source of our knowledge of salvation and how we come to have salvation in Christ. Uh, the teaching of the Scriptures are certainly extremely important in that regard. Uh, and the Scripture teaches us about the life that He has designed us for as well as the life that he has designed for us. Uh, Tim Keller, and I'm sure you've heard this quoted in various ways at various times uh, here at North Bible Church, uh, but he says, this is the teaching of the gospel. Tim Keller says, this is the teaching of the gospel. Yes. <clears throat> we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We come to understand through the teaching of Scripture, not only our fallen nature, but the extent to which God has gone in order to redeem us, in order to save us. We come to understand how loved we are and how deep and wide is the forgiveness uh, through God's love that we enjoy. But teaching is critical for understanding this. Uh, the first week, we looked at some st statistics about opinions of God's word in the United States. Uh, and we saw that three in four Americans continue to believe that the Bible is God's word. And I have to believe that it's a lack of teaching, that it will allow it for three and four Americans to believe that this is God's word, and yet for their lives to reflect nothing of their Savior, for their lives to reflect nothing of the God that they believe wrote these scriptures, that they believe provided salvation for him. But certainly many of those three and four do not know him. And it's very difficult to know and to follow a God that you have never met through his word. Uh, so teaching is extremely important, extremely profitable use of scripture. Uh, the second one, uh, the second prophet of scripture is rebuking. Uh, 
Sometimes we get the impression, we can, uh, that Scripture is all about how loved and how forgiven we are. And certainly that's a part of Scripture. Uh, But we'd be missing a good chunk of the New Testament uh, would be unnecessary if it weren't for the fact that sometimes we need a friendly two-by-four across our head. A God-anointed two-by-four wake-up call that says, hey, this isn't right. This isn't what I've designed you for. And, that, and that's called a rebuke, a reproof, where God looks into our heart through His Word and through His Holy Spirit. The root of this word for rebuke means to expose uh, or to bring something to light. And that's exactly what the Scripture uh, has a power to do in our lives. Uh, but it's important for us to understand Um, that this exposure, that this bringing to light, that this rebuke uh, is never about the letter of the law. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, he says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so when the Lord comes to us through His Word, through His Holy Spirit, with a rebuke, exposing something in our lives, in our hearts, that is not right, It's not about the letter. It's always about something better. That He always has something better for us. Always something greater for us. Always something more that He's inviting us into. He's inviting us out of something and into something better. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The author of of Hebrews writes, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And the word of God does that in a way that nothing else can, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart and rebuking us accordingly. I grew up back in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, my parents only gave me a couple of choices for school, and and the one I chose was an all-boys Catholic Jesuit high school. And uh, there were about a thousand young men on the campus there, um, which should explain in your minds um, and mine why we had a person on staff whose title was the Dean of Discipline. And that was his sole purpose throughout the day, uh, was to be the dean of discipline. And everyone knew uh, who Brother Wilmot was. Well, one day I was sitting in study hall, uh, which is a room about this big, actually, um, and there were row after row after row of desks. Um, So imagine that you're all sitting in desks facing the front, and there would have been uh, two very high desks towards the front, each with a priest seated at it. And they would watch over everyone in the middle of study hall. And every once in a while, a door at this end of the room would open and a priest would walk in. And he would walk up to one of those tables with a piece of paper. And generally speaking, you hoped that your name was not on that piece of paper. uh, Because study hall was obviously the best time for Brother Wilmot to call you in. So there I am sitting in study hall one day. Uh, The priest walks up to the table. 
uh, I see him looking around the room, and then uh, he points my direction and says, uh, Troy Hawks? Yes. Brother Wilmot wants to see you. It's going to be a good day. So I walk up the couple of flights of stairs, uh, concrete stairs, and uh, right at the top was the doorway, the entrance into Brother Wilmot's office. And I walk in and he says, Hawks, have a seat. We were on a first name, well, last name basis, actually. Uh, not that we talked that much, but he says, Hawks, have a seat. Yes, sir. He says, uh, Wednesday, I saw you and your buddy Dave going out to the parking lot and leaving campus for lunch. What do you have to say about that? I'm sorry? I'm going to need your demerit card. Yes, sir. I'll see you in Jug this afternoon. Yes, brother. By the way, Jug was justice under God. Um, that was our name for detention. Uh, you, you went to justice under God with Brother Wilmot in the afternoon. Of course, later in the day, I ran into my buddy Dave, found out that he'd been invited into the office about five minutes before I had and denied the whole thing. Uh, no justice for Dave, just justice for the honest one, right? <clears throat> it's like the Old Testament, right? You see the other people profiting. Um, But Brother Wilmot had a way of discerning the thoughts and intentions of certain students on campus, knowing their ways and anticipating what they might do on any given occasion. Uh, the great thing about Brother Wilmot was uh, he was highly respected uh, because he was an authority, but he was a just authority, and he was a true authority. And... Uh, we only, re we only received the rebukes that we deserved. Uh, and no one ever got anything from Brother Wilmot uh, that they hadn't earned. <clears throat> but a rebuke is about exposing, uh, bringing something to light so that it could be dealt with. So the four prophets of Scripture are teaching. We've seen that. We've seen rebuking. And the third one is correcting. Uh, now, if, if rebuking is a two-by-four, um, then maybe correcting is an ice pack. Uh, cor correcting is kind of the idea of taking a broken bone and setting it right. Uh, there's a fracture, there's a break, there's a problem. Um, and correcting is coming in and, and setting that thing right. Um, one author wrote that uh, it's about restoring the misguided and misdirected uh, to right paths and right relationships with God. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, who's a comedian, some of you may be familiar with him. Uh, I appreciate his comedy. Um, but he talks about uh, hot pockets. And uh, the more I was thinking about it, um, sin is a little bit like a hot pocket, right? Uh, and, and Jim Gaffigan says that never in his life has he ever finished a Hot Pocket and sat down on the couch and said, man, am I glad I ate that. <laughs> Nobody does that. 
right? And the thing with sin is um, that it's a little bit like a hot pocket. You know, I, it's a bad sign that you can find them at the gas station. That should tip us off, first of all. Um, but, you know, sin is a little bit like a hot pocket. This packaging is really attractive. It really is. It, it holds a lot of promise. As I pulled this out of the freezer earlier this morning at the gas station, I learned that it's a good source of protein. Yes. And it has a delicious garlic buttery crust. It's got a lot of promise. It really does. But the reality of what's inside is a little different story. You've got this, I guess you could call it a pastry. But really, anything that comes with a microwave sleeve, you should doubt the culinary art that went into designing this thing. And, and here's the thing with sin, right? Uh, is it's kind of this thing that has a lot of promise. Uh, and, it, and it looks good. But in the end, uh, we find out that it's just some nasty meat and cheese that leaves us feeling worse than when we started. You know, we have a real need. Um, you know, hunger is a real thing. And it's a need that needs to be met. Um, but ha uh, sin, like a hot pocket, is just the wrong way to go about meeting that need. And it's... <clears throat> It goes back to the idea about the rebuke. It's not about the letter. It's not about the letter of the law. The letter kills. It's not about the letter. It's that God has something better for you. It's, it's not about the letter. It's about that he has something better. Uh, and many of us, for too long, are settling for hot pockets in our life. Uh, we've just decided that this is good enough. That there's something that's keeping us from the something better. Whether it's fear or comfort or a lack of trust in the truth of God's word. That there really is something better out there. But those things that we choose to hold on to have the same effects on our soul and our spirit as this thing has on your digestive tract. It's just not good for you. God has something better. And you know as well as I do that those things that we hold on to are really the things that are holding us back. We've held on to them for years. And that's why we're still exactly where we're at. We have not progressed an inch because we won't let go. We won't step out. We won't trust that God's word is true, that he has something better that he has designed us for and designed for us. So there's teaching, there's rebuking, there's correcting, and then finally there's training. Uh, training in righteousness, to be specific. Uh, any of you that have been married for any length of time could tell all of us a little something about training. We've all been trained. I used to think that the toilet paper roll went with the 
toilet coming out on the bottom, but I have been trained to understand now that it comes out on the front, on the top. I have been trained in paths of righteousness that I might live in right relationship with my teacher. And Scripture is much the same way, that the Lord does not desire to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, just so that we would have head knowledge about who God is, but that we would live a life that issues in holiness, that issues in righteousness, that we might actually reflect Him to the world, uh, that our relationships would reflect Christ, that our, uh, our actions and our behaviors and our attitudes wouldn't lead people to say, he's a Christian? But would lead them to say, yeah, that guy, he's a Christ follower, I know, that's, that's his deal. It's not just a head knowledge, but a knowledge of God that issues in holiness. Uh, in John 17, 17, a verse that we looked at the first week, uh, Jesus says he's praying to the Father, he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for those that would believe in the message of the gospel after the disciples, and he says this, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them, make them holy, set them apart. Prepare them for my purposes through your truth. Through the truth. To be made holy, to be set apart. Uh, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus, getting towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says, advises all of us. That there's, there's two roads in life. There's two. Uh, that there's one that's uh, it's a big, it's got a big wide gate, right? And the, the road is super easy. It's very easy. It's a nice, big, paved highway, lots of lanes, smooth driving. Picture a brand new toll road, brand new asphalt. The way is easy. Uh, and, and there's many people who travel this road. There's just one problem, and it's a minor problem, really, um, it leads to destruction. In the book of Proverbs, it says, there's a way that seems right to a man. <laughs> there's a lot of ways that seem right to a man. But its end is the way of death. And Jesus says, yeah, there's this big, wide road, and there's tons of people on it. I mean, it makes it look really good, but the problem is it ends in destruction. He says there's, there's another gate. There's another gate. Um, it's really narrow. It's really narrow. As a matter of fact, you might have to turn sideways you know, and do a little bit of shimmying to get through this gate. Um, and the way... It's hard. It's not the best road. You know, it's kind of like a four by four Jeep trail out in the desert. It's got a lot of bumps in it. Um, you may find some crossings that are going to be really difficult uh, to get through. And, you know, there's not a lot of people on this road because few find it. 
It's almost hidden to their sight. But, but here's the thing. This road, it, it leads to life. It leads to something better. It leads to all that I have designed you for and designed for you. But it's not easy. That's the life that Christ calls us to. It's a narrow road. But it's the right road for us. So the four prophets teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And then Paul finishes up in 2 Timothy 3, verse 17. He tells us the purpose for these four prophets of the word. And it's this, that the man of God, that the woman of God, that the follower of Jesus may be complete, equipped for every good work, You know, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes that, that we, we are his workmanship. Uh, that we've been created or, or recreated in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the four prophets of Scripture... Prepare us to be complete, to be equipped for the life that He designed us for. And the life that He designed for us, that He has good plans and good purposes that only He can bring about as we follow the narrow road. We will step into all that He has for us. Well, the purpose of this series, as it comes to a close, was really to make the case for anyone that may be undecided about the authority of Scripture. Whether these are really God's words, whether this is really a unique book, really inspired by God, really breathed out every word by the Creator of the universe. And we've done our best to make that case. That it's trustworthy, that it's reliable. That archaeology and history just continue to confirm the accuracy of what's contained in the pages of this scripture. So that in our world of shifting sands and changing opinions and the newest hot topics, that you might know where to find your authority. Uh, in a world that says that there is no truth, really, that you might know the truth. Uh, that you might decide to make this the authority about truth in your life, in your household, for your family, for your legacy. And so I'd invite you to make that decision, make that commitment today. Because it is true, it is trustworthy, and it has something better for us.
than that wide road that so many travel. And then secondly, an opportunity for us to evaluate how much authority does the Word of God actually have in my life? How open am I to these four prophets of Scripture? How actively am I seeking those things? And I'm not sure how many of us on a weekly basis open the bulletins that Tina works so hard to prepare for us and make them very beautiful as well, but um, she's also prepared a sheet um, in your bulletin that has some self-evaluation that you can do there. You know, we talked about the Word of God uh, discerning the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, and this, this is just a good way for you to do a self-evaluation. How open am I really? How actively am I seeking teaching from Scripture? How much do I want to know about this God? How open am I to rebuke? How open am I to saying, to hearing someone say, to hearing the Word say, to hearing the Holy Spirit say, you know what, this thing in your life is just not right. It just isn't. It's a hot pocket. And you need to ditch that thing. How open am I to that? How open am I to correction? And how open am I to being trained in holiness and righteousness? When it comes to your thoughts, your attitudes, and life choices, who or what really is your ultimate authority? Because we might think that this is, but maybe it's not. Which brings me to my final question. Where are the high places in your life? Where are the high places? You know, in the Old Testament, the people used to, you know, go through these cycles of being true to the Lord, of following Him faithfully, of seeking Him, of representing Him well, and then they'd fall back into, they'd get comfortable, and then they'd fall back into um, their old ways and worshiping other gods, and they would build these altars on, on these places that were called the high places. And they were never near the temple. They were always outside somewhere. Um, kind of like the Lord couldn't see the high places because he was in the temple. And they'd go there to worship other things. So what are the high places in your life? What are the things that are beyond the reach of this word? Uh, not because the Lord's hand can't reach, uh, but because you've put up a wall and said, yeah, Lord, I'll let you come in here, uh, but not up there. That's, that's my thing up there. What are the high places? If, if the Holy Spirit laid bare your heart today, what would be the number one high place that the Lord would ask you to take down? Not because of the letter, but because he has something better for you. And because you know as well as he does. Uh, you've been told, you've read, that this thing that you're holding on to is really the one thing holding you back. 
as we pray this morning, I'd like you to just think about what that one thing is. And if it's not coming to mind, then while we pray, ask the Lord to show you what it is. Um, because it may have settled in your spiritual digestive tract uh, for so long that you're not even aware it's there. So ask the Lord to show it. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that it's trustworthy. I thank you that there are so many lives and families in this room today that can testify about the better things that you have invited them into as they have let go of the things that they held on to. And Lord, I pray for each one of us in here this morning. Lord, we pray for these things that we have been holding on to. Lord, we pray that you would break their power over us. In Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would help us to quit seeing them as a shiny thing that promises us hope that meets a need and that you would help us instead to see it as spiritual garbage things that are destroying our souls and that what you invite us into is better Lord bring us conviction bring us correction and give us the power through your spirit to walk in the truth we thank you, we love you, uh, and we ask it all in Christ's precious name. Amen.